You're listening to episode 45 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. It's the 22nd of May 2019 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. I'm Simon Jones and I'm joined by my sublime colleague Steph McKenna. Hello. And Flo Reynolds. Hello. Hello. I think it's your first time on the podcast for a while. For a while, yeah. Yeah, so coming up today we have an interview with Kelly Greenberg-Jeffcott, who you spoke to towards the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, what are you reading at the moment, Flo? Uh, I'm reading lots of things, as I can't ever read one book at Always once. Always got a few things on the go, yeah. Yeah. First of all is um, a book called Epic Continent by Nicholas Jubber, and it's a, it's a kind of travelogue from ancient Greece through Anglo-Saxon East Anglia and off to medieval Iceland, but via the epic poems and kind of foundational texts of um, all those cultures that he takes in along the way. Um, And then I'm also reading Book of Poetry, um, The Half God of Rainfall by Inua Elms, which is just stunning and I'm loving it. Both very topical because they're both books that will feature during our City of Literature weekend this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is. It's only two days away now. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. So May is traditionally always incredibly busy here um, for various reasons, NNF being a big one. And yeah. we also just had the Notwich Gathering where we had 28, 27 delegates come here to join us from the City of Literature Network. Yeah. So actually 40 six delegates from 27 cities across the world um yes yeah so 20 yes 28 cities of literature across the whole world and they all gathered in norwich uh for the first time ever in england uh this week as part of notwich it's their annual conference symposium i guess you could call it uh, but yes this time it's beginning in norwich and then it's moving over to nottingham hence notwich um, and we're just, it's first time two cities have hosted the meeting together as well. So mm. it's, been, uh, it's been a really lovely three days, actually. It's been jam-packed, very, very busy, but it's just been amazing to meet. I mean, you've, got, you've both got to meet lots of people as well, and it's just, yeah. they've all it's been... It's always exciting when really every person you talk to pretty much is from a different country. Yeah, it's just, it's so nice. It was nice over dinner to sort of swap, you know, stories of... I don't know what a what they're doing in their cities, um, and you know the the things that work really well, the things that are you know maybe more difficult. And, mm. yeah. I love the chance to show off Norwich as a city of literature and just as a lovely place to live and work as well, because mm. it always makes me appreciate it anew mm. as well. And I find out new facts like. Uh, about Anna Sewell, who wrote Black Beauty, yeah. coming to live in Norwich, and all sorts of things. Yeah. Which, yeah, you really, see it with new eyes again. You do, don't yeah. you? Really, it was really nice. To, everyone was full of lots of praise for Norwich and said they felt you know very much at home and they, they really liked the size of the city and they were sort of pointing out corners of the city when we were walking around that they thought looked really beautiful and you kind of remember you know you take them for granted and it was like oh actually yes this it is amazing that this writer was born and lived here and yes this part of the city is really beautiful yeah, so most was, of them hadn't been to Dragon Hall before no. either, so they got to come here and look at the building and again when you work here every day you do slightly you forget that, especially that entrance into Dragon Hall when you go up the stairs. I always forget just how nice that is to a fresh pair of eyes when you first see it. It, it packs quite a punch, I think, doesn't yeah, it? Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I think while we're recording this, they are now travelling to Nottingham for they the are. second half of the week. They are. They'll be, yeah, they'll be immersed in everything that Nottingham has to offer as a city of literature. Um, it just a looks wonderful event with Robert McFarlane. Yeah. I'm so jealous. Very jealous, <laughs> yeah. So this, this, side of, uh, this side of Notwich 
the delegates got to see uh, Ali Smith in conversation with our chief exec, Chris Gribble, last, well, last night for us at the Playhouse. Um, and yeah, when the delegates arrive in Nottingham, they'll be seeing Robert McFarlane give his his lecture as well. So two two very nice evenings out, I must say. Chris gets to do both of them. He's he on does. He's Nottingham, but we've got Sorry to stay here some. and do the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, we've got another event straight away. We don't, no time to rest. We've got to get straight back into this 20 event weekend we've got coming up. Yeah. So this Friday, our City Literature Strand at the North Norwich Festival kicks off properly mm-hmm. and uh, flow because uh, we've talked to Peggy about it in the past, mm. but uh, what would be your number one recommendation for people to check out? Oh, I'm So I am reading his book at the moment, but I am so excited for an event called Fire and Rain on Saturday, which is with Inwa Ellums, um, who I'm reading at the moment, but also with Jan Carson, who is just such a dreamy writer. And the two of them, fresh talent, amazing books, talking about mythology and bringing kind of history and legend into the present day. I'm so, so excited for that event. And that's on Saturday evening here at Jang Hall. Great, so yeah, you can find out about all the events either at our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk or over at the festival website, which is nnfestival.org.uk. It is. So uh, rewinding a little bit, um, you spoke to Kelly Greenberg Jeffcott quite mm. a while back. It was before Christmas, and I think the interview actually kicks off talking about Christmas just coming up. So yeah. people are going to have to use their imagination a little bit there. Uh, mm. And she was at Dragon Hall for UEA Live. Yeah. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what UEA Live is? Yeah. So UEA Live is a really lovely program that I work on here at National Centre for Writing in partnership with the University of East Anglia. And as you know, there are so many brilliant writers who've come through the UEA on one of their courses or another. Um, And really, UEA Live is about bringing those alumni writers back to Norwich, to um, the great community of writers that we have here. And it's a chance for them to read their new work to a kind of home crowd, if you like. But also, there are readings from current students at the UEA. So we've got brilliant hot talent that's already out there and already published and doing amazing things Um, and those people who are just coming up behind and are going to be the next big thing as well so it's such a nice partnership and some really lovely events to work on Um, and Kelly was here in December with the uh, release of her debut novel Swan Song Um, and yeah it's I really enjoyed this interview with her it was so nice to meet her and such a brilliant book to get to geek out about um, with her. Yeah, I think when you did the interview, you'd, you'd just started reading it, so you were quite early on in Had the I? book, and you hadn't finished it at that point. Oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> I think in the interview, she, she kind of warned you that oh. your initial impression might change as you got through it. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's all coming back now. <laughs> Such a great book, yeah. It's, it's definitely on my... So I have two piles of books next to my bed, and one of them is my to read for the first time, and the other is the gems that I want to go back and reread and take more time over and Swan Song is in that oh, brilliant. gems pile. Well, that's always a good, so, couldn't say, well, you can't really say better than that, can you? Yeah. If you? If you want to go back and reread, even when you've got a big pile of other books, I think that's yeah. always a good sign. And Swan Song, just a couple of weeks ago, I think, was long-listed for the 2019 Women's Prize for Fiction, so that's yeah, very exciting too. Yeah, really, really great and, yeah, brilliant well deserved, book. yeah. Yeah, and obviously this interview was conducted before that, so uh, it was quite early on in the book existing. Mm. Um, but yeah, here is Flo talking with Kelly. 
So, Kelly greenberg Jeffcott, very warm welcome to Dragon Hall. Thank you, it's so good to be back. It feels like bringing the swans home. Oh, that's lovely, thank you so much. Delighted to have you with us. Yeah, we are here to talk about your debut novel, Swan Song, which I am currently about two thirds of the way through. And oh my goodness, I'm enjoying it so much. This is the perfect Christmas read for me. Um, Thank you. Of course, the second you say that, I'm thinking of all that's coming that you'll get to. Oh, yes. But it's full of all the glitz and the glamour and the intrigue that I'm just, I know that the first few days of my Christmas holiday is going to whiz by. There's, there's a particularly Christmassy bit in the penultimate chapter, which is overall sort of a, a literary acid trip of sorts. Um, everything comes back into play and it's, it's Truman coming to terms with answered prayers and wrestling his demons. But um, there is a moment with a Christmas tree that is not to be missed at holiday season. Brilliant, I cannot wait. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I wonder if you could, you've given us a few little uh, spoilers there maybe, well, not quite spoilers, but a few things to look out for. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about Swan Song and how you came to write this particular book. Well, I had always had an obsession with Truman Capote. I grew up in the American South. Actually, I'm a Texan, but my maternal grandmother is from a little town outside of New Orleans, and Truman was from a little town in Alabama. So my grandmother was a colloquial storyteller. She was very much of the rocking chair and the porch chat and the yarn spin. And no matter how cosmopolitan Truman's novels are, or his nonfiction or his short pieces, there's always something of the Southern raconteur about his prose. And I always responded to that, even in, in Tiffany's or some of the more you know, Manhattan-based novels or, or the pieces set in Europe, there is still something of the Southern storyteller. So I think I read Breakfast at Tiffany's when I was 11 or 12, then raced through everything else. I think by the time I got to university, I had read everything he had ever penned. Um, and had started reading the biographical information. And there's a wonderful doorstop of a, of a biography by Gerald Clark, and it's absolutely magnificent. And it was when I first read about these very powerful and influential women that Truman called his swans. And I knew a few of them. Um, I'm a classic cinema buff, so I knew, I knew Slim Keith very well, who discovered Lauren Bacall and created her screen persona. They were pretty much one another's alter egos. And I, of course, knew Lee Radziwell, Jackie Kennedy's younger sister, and had heard of the others, but given that they were really, truly the most powerful women of their age, it was astonishing that I knew them as a group. I knew them as a set. I knew them as being married to powerful men. I knew them as the jet set. I knew them as the women that Truman hand-selected as his swans. But I found it extraordinary that they're remembered as a set and not as these extraordinary individuals that they indeed were. Um, there's another book that George Plimpton wrote that is an oral biography of Capote, and it gives the sense of really sort of wandering through a cocktail party and passing Truman's friends and detractors and those who love him and those who loathe him all telling stories and gossip. And so I really responded to that as well. So initially the idea was wanting to, to restore the voices of these women who we've come to think of as being defined by either their class or their associations and, and give them back their agency and tell their tales. Truman really, he chose those six women 
very specifically because he thought that they were novelistic heroines. He thought that each of them was, as he called it, a bold act of self-creation. So any one of them could have been the Madame Bovary or the Anna Karenina of her day. So I wanted to, in a sense, write a version of the book that Truman was unable to complete thanks to this rupture that happened between them. Yeah, oh my goodness. There's so much in what you've just said that I can't wait to dig into a bit more. And one of the questions that I had was, um, so you're writing about real people. This is a novel, but as you say, these real people had that persona, it was self-created. And then there's uh, the lens of, of Truman looking at them, yes. assembling them. And beneath all those different layers, the, the agency of these, these real women who, as you say, were powerful and amazing women um, who somehow navigated all of the intrigue and, and pressures of their, their jet set world. Um, how did you balance fact and fiction and kind of find your way through all those layers in, in writing the book? For me, I am always inspired by unexplored histories. So I, I love to think of the facts of whatever the narrative is as the skeleton. And once I have that, that very rigid structure of what is fact and, and using the history as a springboard, then where I get to play and be inventive is in prose techniques, yeah. in voice, in style. Um, it, it was such fun to, throughout the book, sort of pay homage to Truman's various works in, in the prose craftsmanship. Um, it was wonderful to get to tell all of the women's stories. They, they function, for most of the book, as a Greek chorus of the betrayed. Um, what happened, I should probably say for those who haven't read the book, um, Truman had, in the mid-50s, intentionally befriended these six women, Babe Paley, Slim Keith, Gloria Guinness, Morella Agnelli, Lee Radziwell, and I'm forgetting someone, CZ Guest. Oh my gosh, how could I forget CZ? Uh, and so he, his mother had very much wanted to be a society lady. In her day, it would have been cafe society. And she'd worked very hard to sort of climb her way out of this, this hillbilly existence and marry her second husband. Her first husband, Truman's father, was a con man who ran out of money on their honeymoon. She was a teen bride and left Truman locked in motels while she went in search of bigger fish. And she married a, a Cuban businessman who almost got her into the society she so craved. And he was arrested on fraud charges and she was facing the prospect of being sent back down to what she considered the, the nothing gutter of society and she committed suicide. And Truman had a very troubled relationship with her, but he really did he inherited her obsession with the upper class, but on another level, I think he, he quite romantically, with a, with a capital R, blamed this set of people for taking his mother away from him for good. And so he decided that he would get to know these six women very well. He would get them to trust him. He would learn their secrets. And then he would be in the, the rare position to write what he planned as the Proustian expose of the American upper class in the 20th century. And what he didn't bank on was falling madly platonically in love with each of them. He was gay, had a long-term partner. They were straight, had multiple husbands. But they really were these romances. They, you know, apart from lacking a sexual component, they were one another's closest 
bonds and they shared everything with him. And it's one thing to, in theory, write about the American upper class, but it's another thing to then, in doing so, be forced to betray the people who have become your closest friends. So he delayed, delayed. He wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's. He wrote all sorts of nonfiction plays, screenplays. Um, and he spent six years, arduous years, in Kansas researching and writing In Cold Blood, which would be his absolute masterpiece, inventing what he called the nonfiction novel, the, the true crime genre. And he had, by the early 70s, he was the darling of the press. In 1966, he had thrown the black and white ball at the Plaza Hotel that really everyone in every different category of, of notoriety flocked to, whether it was the politicians or the artists or the society folk. Um, and so he, he was on top of the world, but by the early 70s, he had taken over a million dollars of advance money from Random House and not delivered a syllable and run his mouth about this this magnum opus he was working on, Answered Prayers, is what it was to be called. So in 1975, up against it, he thought he would just stave off the hounds by publishing extracts in Esquire magazine. He published the first one that bore, the protagonist bore a great resemblance to Babe Paley, but because it was just Babe, she kindly overlooked it and everyone thought it was genius and he was back on top of the world. And then the second extract he published he managed to flagrantly betray the confidences of five out of the six women. And he knew that they would be mad, and he knew that their husbands, who were equally exposed, would be mad, but he thought that they loved him so much they would forgive. And in this, he grossly miscalculated because they spent the next 10 years devoted to ruining him, publicly and professionally. Yeah. So, Yes, so that's, that is the premise of it. Uh, but we meet the women as this Greek chorus of, of the wronged, you know, characters that he tried to, to stuff into his grand Proustian plan. And I really wanted to replicate that society, that collective betrayal, because I think it was significant that... Had it just been one of them, I think that it would have blown over. But the fact that it was all of them was such a significant act of, of disloyalty that that collective voice is very important. And it also replicates the voice of gossip. But with gossip, you have the gossipers and the gossipees. So it became clear early on that we needed moments where each of the six women splintered off and we got them on their own. And so to develop their voices... I turned to various musical techniques and for each just found sort of the perfect format. So to return to the original question, which is fact versus fiction, I try to have every significant plot development based on fact as Capote did within Cold Blood, but where I, I really then got to play and be inventive and, and have a field day was in the arena of voice and, and craftsmanship. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yes. Again, so many things that... I feel like this book, when you ask a question, there's always about five different topics before you can return to the question because they all sort of are linked. Yes, absolutely. And exactly what you were saying about you, you have this kind of uh, this chorus voice, which is quite the... I Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's kind of the judging voice in Truman. It's the 
where they, the voice that comes along when there's damage that he's doing. But then each woman, you, you see elements of her life, her intense friendship with Truman. Yes. And different points along her trajectory as well. And it's just so interesting. And I, I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you told everybody's stories at different points in their life. As you say, there's, there's Truman's childhood and then his, you know, he's, he's on top of the world. And then again, he's kind of hoping this is going to put him back up there. And at the same time, you have all these different um, narrative strands of all the different women and, um, you know, maybe looking back on how they got to where they were. And it's such a, a nimble structure. Thank I, you. I, I don't know how you achieved it. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Can well, you tell us the great, the great joy was I knew I didn't want to tell... There is a straightforward version of his story and a very linear version of his story, and that is not the version that I wanted to tell. Yeah. I wanted it to really sort of replicate Truman's state of mind where he was all over the map and he was looking at their lives and thinking, what are the best bits? What are the most significant bits? And so in a sense, the solo chapters, as I call them, function almost as mini novellas for each of the women. And they're kind of a, a, a peek into the many novels that I think he would have written about each of them had he completed Answer Prayers, which he never completed. He did walk around for years with an 800-page manuscript, but he would read to you from it. He never actually handed it over for anyone to read. And toward the end of his life, he would give people keys, and they would say, you know, friend, you'd go to a dinner party, hand over a key, and you'd say, what's this? And he would say, oh, honey, it's Answered Prayers. And he wouldn't tell you what it opened. So it, you know, he suggested that he had taken out long-term safety deposit box contracts, that he had left it in a Greyhound locker, that he stored it in the strong box behind the bar at the Ritz. I mean, he, he just loved to sort of play with this idea of this literary Sasquatch that yeah. may or may not exist. So that was incredibly fun to try to sort of get into his mindset and, and write the chapters that he, he did state um, quite specifically in some instances what he intended to include in the book. So there are several chapters that are very much sort of fulfilling his vision and seeing it to fruition, which has been just a joy and a treat. Um, what is fascinating about the solo chapters is initially... The idea was there was not going to be the, the choral we, the first person plural perspective. The initial plan, and it was great on paper, was that I was going to have the women alternate chapters. So we'd have a babe chapter, then a slim, then a CZ, then back to babe, then a Gloria, etc. It was going to be close third person point of view. They were going to gag Capote as he did them and render him the victim of their prose. Again, this is a great plan, but very, very early on, um, when I was first developing, I, I researched the, the material for 10 years, then I started writing in 2014, and it was in the UEA Guardian masterclass, the six-month masterclass that used to exist. And James Scudamore, who's a UEA grad uh, and Booker nominee, um, he, he was my, my first mentor, and early on, he read what has now become the first chapter. Actually, I think he read chapter two first. And he said, just because you're not calling them we doesn't mean that's not who they are. Uh -huh. And I thought, oh, no, 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 that doesn't go with the plan. The plan is 
alternating chapters, close third person, Truman is gagged. But why would you gag the most interesting character of the 20th century? And if this voice was emerging, why was I standing in its way? So I went off to write a chapter in that first person plural voice, really just to, to prove that it didn't work. And I sat down and within four hours wrote what has become chapter one verbatim. I don't think a syllable has ever changed. So, and it happened again with, with the penultimate chapter. Um, and it would happen moments in the solo. So what I really, I would say, the lesson that I learned was my plans, me trying to micromanage the narrative was what was standing in its way. And I really did the hard and long way learn that the book tells you what it wants to be. It evolves and, and as long as you're not forcing it into a preconceived idea, it will evolve into something magical. I don't think anything, the things that I love the most in the book, I, had I sat down to, to outline or to plan, they never would have occurred. Yeah, oh my goodness. That, yeah, I mean, that's a story in itself, how you, how you came to write this story. Amazing. You must have had an absolute ball writing this book. The style, the glamour, the, as you say, the gossip is just so much fun. Every character is so much fun to, to be with. And well, they're all so years. brilliant. They're just, and, and Truman himself, he then elbowed his way into the book. That is the next piece of the journey <laughs> that he was not going to just be quiet and let them tell the tale. So initially I had said, you know, we need to understand why he would have done this, why he possibly would have potentially damaged these relationships that he worked so hard to cultivate. And so I thought, okay, he can, you can understand a lot of what Truman did based on his very damaged childhood, where he was unwanted and left with relatives in rural Alabama, where his only friend was remarkably Harper Lee living next door. Um, and so I thought, okay, he can come in as his boy self. So he became, he became the boy in the story. And it wasn't until about a year in that I realized, oh, wait a minute. He's the boy, whether he's 8, 18, 28, 58, he, he never moved beyond that mentality of the damaged little boy locked in a room. And so he, he did creep in as his boyhood self that he really continued to be for the, the rest of his life. Absolutely, and the teller of tall tales, and it just had such a way with words. Sugar, let me oh, tell you, and all different of that. versions. <laughs> he knew how to how to tailor a story to a particular audience member. He would tell different versions, and I do play with that technique throughout Swan Song. That he would tell different versions to different listeners, yeah. and so that you know he knew what to tell you to get you to talk. I mean, there's a fantastic piece, a short piece that he wrote called The Duke and His Domain, where he shows up in Tokyo at Marlon Brando's hotel room with a bottle of hooch. And by the end of this interview slash conversation, Truman opens up about his mother and his childhood. And by the end, Brando's just, you know, weeping into his whiskey glass, talking about his own damaged mother. And, you know, he just knew how to get people talking. Brilliant. And you, as you say, you've spent 10 years researching the book and then, then there's the writing and then there's the wait between handing in that manuscript and publication. You've been with these characters for a long time. Did it 
was it a, a wrench to give them up and, and oh, say that's I'm, it? I'm now. still going through the, the the withdrawal process, and I think to some extent they'll always be with me. It was it's a very long journey, and you know they they have become sort of imaginary friends meet alter egos. I just I adore them, and and to to really be able to write with the authority of each, I had to know everything about their lives just down to minute detail, and so. You never really move away from those characters. I had a, a writer friend the other day say, okay, you need to break up with Truman. You need to go, you know, have some character one night stands so you can have, you know, the next big relationship. And I've known what the next book is and the one after that for about five years now. But it's just the idea of, of getting quiet enough that those voices start talking. And you know, it could be a, a very different lesson with the next book. I like to, to try to think I learned something with this one that they'll tell me what they want to be, but maybe I'll have to, to come in just like I did with this and, and make initial mistakes based on good ideas on paper. Yeah, brilliant. Can you, can you let slip any tiny secret about your next book or what next, what's next for you? And I mean, it's just amazing that this is your debut and yeah, what a, what an amazing book to to release into the wild. Um, well, what... actually, it was kind of insane. Like, had, had I, it was just absolute naivete. I just didn't think, hey, maybe this would be a great book two or three, and you know, write something simpler that takes less time for the first one. But you know, it's it's it did have this this wonderful journey as I was writing it that it began in the UEA Guardian Masterclass. And then there was a year where my husband was on tour in King Charles III, the Mike Bartlett play. And so we were all over England. We were in Sydney at the Sydney Theatre Company. And I would lug around this massive suitcase full of research books. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of less glamorous than their means of travel, but it was sort of fitting for writing a book about international nomads while kind of doing the same. Yeah. And, and then it's, it, I, I had a, a wonderful sort of, passport from aspiration to realization through pre-publication prizes. So it won the Bridport Prize, it shortlisted for Lucy Cavendish and the Historical Novel Society and Married Editions and, and Bath Novel. And so it sort of had these, these followers and, and supporters and champions that it was gathering along the way. And then finally, it was seeing it to fruition doing my MA at UEA. And it's, I mean, when, when I, I think how much of it actually came together in my, my year at UEA. I mean, the solo chapters, I had Slim solo and Babe solo, but I wasn't, I, I hadn't yet come to call them that. Yeah. And it was at Easter break that I suddenly had paralytic Truman-esque writer's block, and I wasn't writing, and I had to figure out why. And I realized it's because they were sort of rattling their collective cage and protesting. They didn't want to be this group voice anymore. They wanted these individual solos. So when one thinks about it, that was at Easter. My final manuscript was due September the 1st. And just in that time, dissertation period and the summer, but certainly you know, my, my workshop with Andrew Cowan was just instrumental it would not be the book it is without Andrew Cowan's story whisperer but so it's I, I sort of had this wonderful journey where I was in different locations when different concepts happened and um, 
yeah, so that's that has been really lovely, and I've 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 been so lucky to to get to sort of develop it with peers and colleagues throughout a long period of time. Um, so I'm sort of looking at the next ones, wondering how in the world does one do this without that lengthy process and and all of those those champions. Um, but they never go away, so it's fine. Absolutely. And yes, and the the, the next several will be exploring different facets of that same time period. Um, I, I love the I, 19th century and the 20s as a reader, but as a writer, I really sort of come alive in 1930, and then to me the world really kind of ends in 1979. So I love that mid-century period, and I want to, to explore different facets of it. So we're going to be shifting to the West Coast and dealing with designers and architects for a book too. And for the next ones, same, same sort of wheelhouse, same period, um, exploring different facets of collectives and continuing to explore what is an artist's responsibility to his work or his colleagues or his subjects. Oh my goodness, I cannot wait. Okay, and one final question. I have to ask you because I can't make up my own mind, <laughs> but who is your favorite swan and why? And who should I like best? Oh gosh, it's one of my favorite questions to ask others because it's so surprising. Sometimes I'll have someone pegged and think, oh, that's, that's a babe girl and or, or you know, that's a slim guy. And then I always get surprised. Um, for the record, officially, I love all of my, my swan children equally. Absolutely. And, and I, I have to say I do, even the ones that I... I struggled with that I didn't feel that I related to as much. By the time I wrestled through their, their solo chapters, I felt that I had come to understand them and find each of them so incredibly sympathetic. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that Lee and Gloria gave me such grief. <laughs> Lee probably most of all. But, but by the end of her chapter, I really came to understand and sympathize with her. And Gloria's is an example of the form dictating what, what her story was. She was famously unreliable about her own narrative. She would tell you the bits she wanted known, and she would cover up some of the, the more scandalous bits, the whole Nazi spying uh, phase especially. Um, and I, I found, because she would, she would just give bits and pieces, I thought, how am I going to, to tell her tale? And I found this wonderful form of Mexican folk balladry called a corrido that suited exactly the way she would give the heroic exploits in, in a way that made her comfortable. It suited that. So by the end of, of her chapter and finding her through that form, I adored her, whereas before I really didn't relate to her. So officially, I adore them all equally. Mm -hmm. If I was taken hostage and I had to be honest, Slim Keith is my spirit animal. She's, yeah. she just, I've always had a, a Betty Bacall thing and, and you realize Betty Bacall is but Lauren Bacall because of Slim, that's exactly who she is. And there's a reason Hemingway was in love with her. There's a reason that she had these remarkably gifted uh, entertainer husbands. And she was quietly behind the scenes writing and directing more than we know uncredited. Um, that's the thing with each of them. They were such remarkable businesswomen and entrepreneurs and, and visionaries. And so, yes, I, I, there's things about each of them that I just adore, but Slim is the one that is the most me, the California broad. Yeah, brilliant. I have to say that so far, 
as I say, only two thirds of the way through. I'm sure there's time to change my mind, but yeah, I have such a soft spot for Slim. And just you just put your lips together and blow. She, <laughs> she says it in there. So well, it'll fantastic. be interesting to see when you get a bit further. Susie's having a, a a big wave of popularity lately when I ask at events. So. Yeah, she's got a big fan club going. Oh, yeah. And amazing to hear how little old Norwich somehow has helped direct this amazing tale that goes across, you know, both sides of the pond and throughout most of the 20th century and just amazing. Well, UEA really was, whether whether it's the masterclass or the MA, they were, they were sort of the bookends. They were, you know, where it, where it began and where it ended. And so I, it just, it, it, wouldn't it would exist in some form but it wouldn't be the book that it it became without uea brilliant and i'm so glad it is the way it is oh. what a brilliant brilliant debut kelly thank you so much for talking to us today thanks for listening and thanks to kelly for coming into dragon hall you're welcome anytime if you have questions or want to get in touch you can find us on twitter uh, i'm steph x mckenna simon uh, you can find me at tarnamus and flow I am at Ren, R-E-Y-N underscore flow, F-L-O. Um, you can also find the National Centre for Writing across uh, all the social media platforms. So we're on Twitter at Writers Centre as well as on Instagram. You'll find us on Facebook if you look up National Centre for Writing. And as always, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by visiting the National Centre for Writing website. Subscribe and we will send you regular updates uh, with everything that we're up to. And please do also uh, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. It's very much appreciated. Thanks again. Keep writing. And we'll catch you on the next episode when we're talking with Indonesian writer Reda Gaudiamo. Bye.